today on Laura Lynn and Friends. Obama was the first guy who threw billions and billions of dollars in government grants at these cities to replace the tax base that they were losing. And then with everything they've done with housing, with everything they've done with, uh, with you know, roads and infrastructure and all of these other things, they've made life way less livable for people in the cities um, and even in the suburbs as well. And all of it makes people more dependent on the government. None of it's an accident. None of it's organic. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the beginning of the last days. My name is Laurel Ann Tyler Thompson. And you know what? We've been doing this about three or four years in this capacity, getting into the fourth year uh, by standing strong ever since all holy hell hit the planet. And but you know what? Um, probably a lot of stuff's been coming for a long time. We've had different leaders that have made all kinds of, um, you know, influences into our society and into our culture. And we're going to get into that today. And, and you know, what is really behind some of the most wicked things that are happening? And it's been a hard, it's been a hard month and it's been a hard few years. But do you know what I love? I love every single day we get to show up and have our coffee together. Some of you tell me that you get your coffee ready to watch the Laurel Lynn show. Some of you watch us late at night and you watch the replay, but a lot of you just love to watch live. So welcome to the show and uh, we appreciate that you're here. You know, if you watch this show that I love to read from my dad's Bible and I opened it up and it went to Hosea 4 today where my dad is underlined uh, in verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject you that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Wow, that is a very, very intense verse that my dad underlined there. Do you know, normally, um, we like to, you know, to quote that verse that says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, but we don't fully understand how God's very upset you're destroyed because you don't have understanding, you don't have wisdom. And because you're rejecting uh, wisdom, then things are going to happen. There's going to be consequences for that. And we've seen that all through history. I sure do not want to reject, um, I don't want to reject knowledge or truth. And that's gotten me in a lot of trouble because as I have stood up for what is right, I have gotten myself in some real hot water, but I think it's the right kind of hot water. It's the kind that cleanses you from deception and it gets all the nonsense out. So many of you know, we've made strong stands here on this show against the vaccines. We've made strong stands on this show against the lockdowns, uh, the sheer lies that we've had to undergo. And we continue to make strong stands politically against the leaders in North America that have brought chaos and destruction, literally. So you are going to love uh, our guest today. His name is Scott McKay, author of Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. Oh, so he is the publisher of The Hayride, an award-winning culture and politics site that covers Southern and national current events. In addition, Scott's work can be found in the pages of the conservative mainstay, The American Spectator, you all know that, where he has been a regular columnist since 
2012. Scott, welcome to the show. And uh, thank you for sharing with us. You have got um, an incredible book that you started basically hunting down uh, what is behind the man Obama. And I'm hoping you can shed some light for us today. Yeah, uh, racism, revenge, and ruin is, it's, it's a look back at Obama's time in office, but it's really more than that. It's not a history book because uh, Obama is not a figure of the past. He is a figure of the present. Um, you know, we're living in, in America through uh, really Obama's third term, maybe even his fourth term, when you consider the effect that Obama had uh, on the deep state and, uh, you know, essentially more than one slow motion uh, coup against uh, the elected president, Donald Trump over those four years. I mean, we, we spent two years with the Mueller investigation. And then at the end of Trump's presidency, we were not allowed to find out about what was in Hunter Biden's laptop, largely on the strength of 51 uh, uh, Obama people uh, in the intelligence community who straight up lied and called uh, the news reports about that laptop Russian disinformation. You know, these were people who had worked in the government while Trump was in office, but they were Obama loyalists. Um, and so really the most consequential political figure in America over the last 15, 16 years um, is a guy who actually hates America and hates Western civilization um, and has done everything he could to destroy it. In his term, uh, he calls it fundamental transformation. Um, but, you know, whether it's culture, politics, economics, the guy wasn't even all that good a president in terms of you know, doing things that most people would call effective making policy and, and so forth. And yet he still managed to turn America from something in 2007 that's hardly even recognizable today. Wow. Um, so a lot of people saying that he's literally still running the White House because we're watching Biden uh, just the other day on Remembrance Day. He got lost on a stage. And so uh, how can this man actually be doing anything the only shocking thing to me is that uh, that Biden still thinks that he's going to keep running. And I'm wondering why Obama hasn't given him the private talk yet that he's out. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that, I guess, uh, a, a few days ago, almost a week ago now, uh, David Axelrod, who's very much a, um, a minion of Barack Obama's, uh, for lack of a better word, um, you know, calls out Joe Biden and said, you know, you probably shouldn't run for president. And of course, Biden's response was to call Axelrod a very uncomplimentary name. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, here you have key Obama inner circle people who are talking about um, getting rid of Biden from the ticket. Well, if it wasn't for the fact that Barack Obama was still either highly influential, if not completely in charge, you know, this kind of thing would never happen. Right. You didn't get George W. Bush making statements about whether Trump should run in 2020. I mean, that, like this is not this is something relatively new in American politics that you get a former president of the same party as, uh, as the current president making judgments about whether or not uh, he should run for reelection or the job he's doing or his poll numbers or any of those other things. And believe me, when Axelrod speaks, he is speaking for Barack Obama. There's something else kind of interesting to this. And I guess it was back in 2017, it was right after Obama left office. 
he did Stephen Colbert's show. And that this was set up like a joke, right? Colbert talks about this as well. You know, you know, would you ever want to be like the power behind the throne? And would you want to, uh, you know, kind of be a like a shadow president? He didn't say it exactly in those words, but this is what he, what he meant. And Obama launched into this little description of what, you know, he really would like, which is, yeah, hey, I'd love to be, you know, T-shirt and shorts in my basement and, uh, you know, have somebody with an earpiece and I can kind of tell them what to do, right? And they kind of put this off as it was kind of like a joke. Um, and then the Democrats run 25 different people for president in 2020, right? It's like this cast of thousands. Nobody wanted to vote for any of them, right? Um, initially, the Team Obama choice, if you'll remember, was Kamala Harris. They couldn't sell her, right? She was she crashed and burned on the on the landing pad, essentially, uh, or on the on the launch pad. Um, and then they ultimately settled on Biden that nobody wanted to vote for him either, right? And then Biden picked Harris as his number two. And so the two most obvious Obama puppets among the 25 presidential candidates that the Democrats had running uh, in 2020 ended up president and vice president. Um, and then to sort of culminate this whole thing, you had that episode at the White House when Obama made his return, right? And he shows up and it's like a conquering hero with a parade and everybody's mobbing him and it's this big you know deal and all the staffers are running in to go shake his hand. And you know, poor Joe Biden, the president of the United States, can't even find somebody to have a conversation with. And we're all I watching the video. That. And it, it's like, this is bizarre. This is absolutely crazy. I've never seen anything like it. But what it tells you is, okay, you know, I'll, I'll point out, Barack Obama is the first ex-president in American history, uh, or at least since Woodrow Wilson, who, you know, at the time was incapacitated because of a stroke, uh, to live in Washington after somebody else replaced him. You know, he they, like he's the first. He went and bought a mansion in Calorama in D.C. and stays there. And um, you know, you, you walk by and there are limousines bringing people uh, to see Obama. You know, um, I guess that's not. A bizarre thing, but it has all the trappings of this is where the real power is. Um, and, you, you know, if you look, you find evidence after evidence after evidence that, you know, this really is Obama's third term, if not his fourth term, if you count what the deep state did to Donald Trump when he was in office. So and, and there's so much to go into about him. But do you think that the reason then that he chose um Biden is because he could control him. Like he needed somebody that was going to listen to him and not take the reins themselves. I, I, I don't think that there's any question. Uh, um, my guess is if they had somebody who was um, more vibrant and more, um, you know, plausible, <laughs> they probably would have chosen uh, that person. But, you know, they're really short of a bitch on Team Obama at this point. Right. Um, you know, Aren't they embarrassed? And, do you think, Scott? Do you think behind the scenes oh no, he's like, people, oh my gosh, these people do not get embarrassed. No? There's they don't get embarrassed. I mean, they will send Corinne Jean Pierre out there to tell you <laughs> that whatever just happened was the greatest thing. <laughs> and she says it with a straight face. And <laughs> all the Democrats in the White House press corps room are just, And we all think that we're in the Truman that. Show. How am I going to defend that? Right. 
We think yeah. we're in the Truman it's, it's Show. You know what I mean? Like, is this for real? Yeah. Are we in a comedy skit? Hmm. Uh, it's not funny. Yeah, especially, <laughs> or, you know, it's especially not as funny it, as we would like to be for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, especially when it comes to like Iran and the fact that, I mean, wasn't Obama pivotal in supporting and propping up Iran? And then now it's being yeah. done again through Biden's administration. Well, the themes that you will find in Racism, Revenge and Ruin is that practically every one of these weird occurrences you see in the Biden administration uh, is simply the metastasization of something that began in the Obama administration, right? So there's the $6 billion that goes to Iran just before Hamas launches the war against Israel, right? Um, you know, and it brings back memories of Obama's, you know, Iran nuclear deal where, you know, we're, we're sending them pallets of cash um, and freeing up money that had been locked away from the Iranians for years. And when we did that, immediately uh, you get intifada in Israel and you get, um, you know, war and strife because that's what Iran does. Right. Um, and, you know, you've got hostage taking and all these other different things that these guys uh, have specialized in for years. And it never phased Obama. It never phased the, the people in his administration that, that did these things, the Ben Rhodeses and, and the Jake Sullivans and the Samantha Powers, all of whom are still around um, and, and playing roles in the Biden administration. So, you know, there's a continuum here, which is not all that unusual. When a political party comes in, they bring the people that had already been there. But these are all Obama inner circle people who are then inner circle people uh, with Biden. And, um, you know, with this president, there's a vacuum, at least in perceived power and influence at the top. Um, and to have all of these Obama people is very telling, right? Previous presidents, you would say, no, the guy that we elected president is the one running the country. And this is the first president where almost nobody believes that. <laughs> like, How could he? Democrats don't believe it. Yeah. And yet they think it's okay because they know it's Obama and they like Obama. Um, right. So they really don't mind the fact that Obama is the power behind Biden's throne. Um, and as for the rest of us, it's a little unnerving, frankly. Absolutely. Um, there is some talk. I had someone on recently that maybe Obama's wife, Michelle, could be the next person that would that might put their name forward. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think they would like to do that. I think the problem is kind of twofold. Number one, um, she doesn't like the work and she doesn't want to do the work. Um, and then the second problem is, is you can't tell Michelle what to do. Um, and I think that that has, has put them in somewhat of a quandary because it would be difficult to beat Michelle Obama um, simply because the particularly single women vote uh, is, would be so strong. Uh, for her, that that's going to establish a, a base of voting that's going to be really difficult to overcome. But she doesn't want it, you know, huh. and, and I, I think she's been very clear about the fact that she doesn't want to get involved in elective politics. She's not Hillary Clinton. That's not something that that she wants to do. Um, and so it kind of closes off that option. And, you know, like Gavin Newsom said a few weeks ago when he said, look, I'm not running in 2024. You know, he said Kamala I'm Harris is going to China. I'm just acting yeah. like a president. I'm not running, though. Yeah, I think. Well, I think Newsom's deal is is like he's waiting until 2028 
Because I think he looks at this and he says, I can wait. I can let this whole thing crash and burn. And then right. I'll build the machine and it'll be the Newsom machine in 2028. I think that's his okay. strategy. Uh, otherwise, he's a little late, you know, late to the post for 2024. Right. So in researching Obama, did you go into some of his background? Did you go into his younger oh, yes. days? Like, I, I just remember him coming out of nowhere. And it was mainly because Oprah was suddenly putting him forward. Right. And other than that, everyone went, who's this guy? Yeah, he had he had the support of people at high levels in cultural institutions. And he was a cultural figure, really more than a political figure before the 2008 campaign really got going. Um, and that was, I think, the only way that you could have sold a guy like Obama, because let's face it, that background should not have been sellable to the American people. Um, you know, I, I, they made a big thing about his first autobiography, Dreams for My Father, which I don't think he wrote. Um, there's been, you know, good research done on um, on uh, the origins of that book. It looks a lot like Bill Ayers probably ghost wrote it. Um, Ayers wrote an autobiography called Fugitive Days, which reads very similarly, has many of the same metaphors and keywords uh, and sentence structure and so forth is almost identical to dreams from my father. Um, and so they crafted a mythology around Obama central to that book, uh, which is mostly not true. Um, it set up Barack Obama senior as the most important sort of father figure in Obama's life, which was not the case. The most important father figure in Barack Obama's early life was Frank Marshall Davis, who may or may not have been his biological father. You can look at the side by side pictures and they, they're very eye opening. I'm not going to judge that. What I am going to say is Frank Marshall Davis was Barack Obama's ideological and intellectual father. He's mentioned 22 times in dreams from my father at least until you get to the audiobook version, which came out later when Obama was a legitimate political figure. And at that point, all of the references to Frank in that book were scrubbed out. Um, but what's written about him, he's, his full name is not given. He's just sort of presented as this old guy that Obama's grandfather knew that would bring, bring him around to see this guy. Well, Frank Marshall Davis, in case you don't know, was a communist newspaper editor in Chicago and then in Honolulu um, and had written columns that were so virulently anti-American and anti-Western um, as to really blow your mind. And virtually all of the key subject matters that were uh, discussed in those columns that Frank Marshall Davis wrote over the years came back to haunt the American people when Barack Obama was president. For example, Frank Marshall Davis railed against General Motors over and over and over again. And what was the first thing that happened when Obama took over as president, right? He turned General Motors into government motors in very large measure. Um, and there were plenty of other things. Everybody talks about getting rid of the bust of Winston Churchill on basically Obama's first day in office. And that was attributed to Barack Obama Sr., who grew up in Kenya and sort of this anti-colonialist um, uh, mindset that uh, Obama uh, supposedly embraced. But the fact of the matter is, Winston Churchill was one of the key people Frank Marshall Davis railed against again and again and again in his columns. 
So, you know, it all kind of comes back to Frank Marshall Davis when Obama was a kid. Then he gets to Chicago and it's Bill Ayers who everything that's going on in American education right now is something that Bill Ayers has been writing about for 25 years. Okay. And then you get Jeremiah Wright, uh, who yeah, Reverend essentially Jeremiah gave Wright, you, you anti-American, you right. know, goddamn America, that whole thing. Totally um, racist. And it was, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the complete, you know, I hate to say, you know, anti-white racism, but that's exactly what it was. Um, and all of that played out within Obama's presidency and has since in the nonstop racial agitation. Every time the cops had a negative encounter with some criminal, um, you know, the Trayvon Martins, the Michael Browns, the Alton Sterlings, the, you know, Eric Garners. And I mean, they they blew these things up to make them as contentious as they possibly could. Um, and Obama played a central role in that. If you remember, you know, the Trayvon Martin case for the first month after it happened was not considered a big deal. Locally, it was not considered a big deal. Everybody thought it was unfortunate. But, you know, it was like, hey, look, this, you know, this kid was up to no good. And the neighborhood watch guy did what neighborhood watch people do. And he's, you know, beating the guy up. And if you're getting beat up and somebody's grounding and pounding you on the sidewalk and you happen to have a gun, you might take that gun out and shoot the guy. Right. Like that's not unforeseeable. And so in Florida, that was not seen as a big thing. It didn't really become a national thing until Barack Obama said, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. And at that point, this thing blew up into this massive national controversy. And before you knew it, urban Democrats across America are trying to defund the police. And, uh, you know, they had completely demoralized and, and decertified in the public consciousness police forces across the country. And what do you get? The criminals take over the streets and these cities become unlivable. Um, and that's directly attributable to Obama. And he knew what he was doing from day one. In fact, they sent Eric Holder and his Justice Department out to terrorize local police forces all over America. They got consent decrees, I want to say, in 21 different cities. And in every one of those cities, the criminals run the streets now because the cops don't have any power to actually do their jobs anymore. And of course, Cops leave the job because they go work in the suburbs where they don't have this this kind of, uh, you know, stricture and, and um, um, you know, negative morale in the police force. None of this stuff was an accident. This was all done on purpose right? well, because the effects of that redound very, very well to urban Democrat machines. When you have the criminals take over the streets, all the middle class people move out. And guess who would vote against an urban Democrat machine? Middle class people. Right. They move to the suburbs and all that's left is a small skim of rich people who can basically purchase social services a la carte. Their kids go to private schools. They got private security in their neighborhoods. They can pick up the phone and call the mayor's office and get a pothole fixed on their street. Right. And the poor who are easy to govern. If you're one of the between midnight basketball and woke stuff and all the rest of this, you can keep the poor largely, uh, you know, at heel. And then they're going to vote for you over and over again because they're dependent on the government. And this is every single city in America. This was in place before Obama, mind you. But it, it has been completely blown uh, larger in proportion than it, than it ever was, mostly because Obama was the first guy who threw billions and billions of dollars in government grants at these cities to replace the tax base that they were losing. And then with everything they've done with housing, with everything they've done with 
uh, with you know roads and infrastructure and all of these other things, they've made life way less livable for people in the cities um, and even in the suburbs as well. And all of it makes people more dependent on the government. None of it's an accident. None of it's organic. So do you think that um, that he had a specific plan to destroy it or is he is he just uh, unwise and basically makes really bad decisions because now everything is destroyed. Finally, some people are beginning to say, oh, maybe we need police again because the crime rates have gone through the roof in the United States. Like what is with his thinking? It doesn't work and it's not logical. What is, is he deliberately trying to destroy the country or is he just has some sort of mindset that is, is ignorant? Well, understand that the Obama faction of the Democrat Party, you know, whether that you can, I mean, whether it's the squad or the, you know, Democrat Socialists of America uh, or some of these other uh, affiliated uh, things, the Soros uh, uh, network of, of these nonprofits that funnel money into these crazy causes. I mean, all of that is of a, of a, of a similar piece. Um, and none of it has a particular affinity for the American way of life okay uh, the the basic values and and uh and constructs of you know what we consider civilized society these guys have a very different concept of that they think of america as racist and sexist and homophobic and islamophobic um and it was you know the whole country was built on slavery and um you know exploitation of native american peoples and all the rest of that stuff um they're fully bought into it they have they have absolutely indoctrinated people in every cultural institution they can find along those lines. So there's no investment in doing things that we would regard as um, helpful, you know, smart or you know, good governance or any of that. What they're trying to do is they're trying to change the country into something that makes it easier to take and hold power. Um, and you know, they've done it in. Every, every uh, facet of, of life that they could manage. <laughs> would, would and you the thing of it is, yeah, one of the, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going off oh, go at the ahead. mouth, but um, yeah. the thing that is, uh, I guess, most, uh, or one, one of the key things that you look, because it's, it's everywhere where Obama uh, is concerned, is they're no longer trying to persuade people of their point of view. In mm. fact, they never really did. Okay, from the very beginning, you weren't allowed to examine Obama's policies or his background or his qualifications or any of it, because to do any of that was racist. Right. Um, and since then, what we've seen more and more of is there's no attempt to persuade, um, you know, and they're, they're, what there is an attempt to do is to demoralize. And a, a great example of that is, is when they appointed this guy, Richard Levine. Uh, who I guess is Rachel Levine now, as what the number two uh, uh, number two person at HHS. This is somebody who, when they this guy was running the uh, the health department in Pennsylvania, and he put COVID patients into nursing homes and killed six thousand people. Under no construct was this guy even remotely qualified to to fail up as he as he did, but because he's a man in a dress to make any criticism of Levine and say, no, 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 you can't hire that guy for this job based on his performance in Pennsylvania. You can't to do that meant that you were a transphobe 
And so they installed this guy. Now, traditional American politics says uh, the last thing we want to do is put this guy in a position where the American public is going to look at look at him and then judge us for that. They didn't just do Levine. They did this other guy, uh, Sam Britton, uh, I think is his name, who, you know, was a, was a, not only was he a guy in a dress, he's a guy that steals people's bags at the airport if there's women's clothes in it. And they take this guy and they put him in charge of our nuclear weapons or nuclear um, uh, 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 reserve stockpile, right? Yeah. And I mean, it was comical that they would put this guy in, but this is the kind of thing that you do when you're out to show how powerful you are not to persuade people that you're right. And you see this over and over and over again. The 2020 election was sort of the electoral version of this, which is we're going to come with mules. We're going to come with mail-in ballots. We're going to change election law at the last minute, not through the state legislature, but through the courts where we can. And we're going to, you know, we're going to be counting votes and then we'll stop and then we'll dump a whole bunch of ballots into the mix. And oh, by the way, 95% of them are for Joe Biden. And yeah. if you say, hey, hey, this is irregular, yeah. right? Oh, no, 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 no. You're crazy. You can't. I mean, it, it you know, it, it's a, they have turned elections away from, you know, hey, you need to persuade a majority of the people to whoever can harvest the most ballots wins. And that is a pure community activist, community organizing construct that the socialists in America have pushed since the 1980s. Okay, this is all, it's all Obama. This is the effect that he's had first on the Democrat Party and then on the country as a whole. And it's wholly un-American, anti-American. Um, you know, and I, it's increasingly, they're not even mad when you say it, because increasingly they're wide open about the fact that they don't like America anyway. Mm -hmm. Certainly not America as founded. Um, and that's a massive change from 2007. If I had told you back then, hey, this is what it's going to look like in 2023, you'd have thought I was nuts. Mm. You know, it was absolutely crazy. But nobody, when I mention all these things, nobody argues that that's the way things are now. Like, you know, Democrats will tell you it's a good thing. Um, and what about borders? Are the, the borders is just a living, breathing disaster. And actually, in this last three weeks with all of the the marches and whatnot, we're actually, we're watching America go, oh my Lord, like yeah. what have we done? Right. Well, and you know, this, this is, okay, it's another perfect example because for at least a decade prior to Obama coming along, Democrats used to write these triumphal pieces about how uh, you know, the browning of America was going to lead to a permanent Democrat majority in the country and so on and so forth. Um, and then Obama comes in office and there are more illegals being led into the country and given, you know, various forms of amnesty, green cards and, and all this, this uh, kind of stuff, the relaxation of the immigration laws and certainly the relaxation at the border. And so people like Tucker Carlson start talking about, hey, this is like the great replacement. Right. Which Democrats had been bragging about now, not elected Democrats, but sort of the the pundits and theorists and kind of thought leaders in in the Democrat Party had been talking about this for a long time. Um, and then when, you know, Republicans and conservatives start to notice you get called a racist for talking about the great replacement when it's like, well, no, you've been bragging about it. Don't deny that it's happening. This is not some fantasy. And of course, 
with Biden, it's so wide open. I mean, you know, like they, they put this money in uh, in this big aid package for Ukraine and Israel a, a couple of weeks ago that went nowhere in the House. But the Biden administration is $106 billion for all this stuff. And they had $14 billion for border security, right, was, was how it was advertised. That $14 billion was not for closing the border. It was for facilitating more people to get processed at the border. Okay, this was for accelerating illegal immigration in America, which is why, you know, the House didn't even bother to take it up and good for them. But the whole point is, this is another example of Biden, uh, which is really the Obama redux administration, just simply metastasizing things that already happened with Obama that were things that the far left in America and the American Communist Party and, and, and socialist movement in this country had been fantasizing about forever. He made it happen. And now it's, you know, it, it's it's the new reality that nobody wants. Even Democrat voters don't want this. 100 percent. And maybe this will be the thing that changes back, you know, the swing back, I hope. But some of them still so fooled. Um, I have to ask you about, you know, when... When Trump won, I remember when Obama, they, they, they filmed it as Obama had to show Trump through the White House. And I just, I got the giggles. I laughed so hard because they were not expecting this. All signs right. pointed to Hillary winning. And I guess, yes. do you think that Hillary would have been his next puppet? But also... You know, to see him have to, and Trump even looked out of sorts. I remember thinking Trump does not even know what to do with this moment because it's so surreal that he won. And they that none of their cheating or anything they did could keep Trump out because so many people voted for him. Right. Well, you know, at the time, uh, we didn't understand what was going on under the surface. Right. Right. With the entire the FBI doing the entrapment yeah. piece mm. against Mike Flynn, uh, with you know the all of the, the the back channel things that were happening to try to frame Trump as a Russian uh, plant. Right. Um, like we didn't know any about any of that stuff until later, um, and we didn't know about you know Peter Strzok's insurance policy and all of the kinds of. So when you go back and you look at those uh, at those pictures of Trump and Obama, you know, it's, it's a really surreal uh, image now uh, because, I mean, there was open warfare going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. Uh, While Obama sitting there being so nice and, you know, trying to make it look like he's being presidential. Um, do you think yeah. he would have controlled Hillary Clinton the way that he's done with Obama? Uh, with Biden, you mean? I, yeah, with I Biden, think, sorry. Yeah, I think that um, maybe not quite as much. I think Hillary probably would have been a little bit more vibrant and a little bit more mm. uh, strong in personality. Um, <laughs> I don't know if Hillary would have been more corrupt <laughs> than Joe Biden. I think it's kind of hard. But that's, <laughs> right. you know, kind of an like, even, you know, what size waterfall are you measuring here, right? Um, yeah, but, right. Uh, you know, that would have been, I think, probably the most notable characteristic of a of a Hillary Clinton presidency would have been that it was a giant smash and grab operation. Wow. Um, not that this one isn't. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think Obama would have certainly had a lot of influence over a Hillary Clinton uh, presidency. I think it's fairly clear when he beat her in 2008 
that she essentially adopted all of the precepts of Team Obama. Certainly, that's why she became Secretary of State. Um, and, you know, when she ran in 2016, I mean, she ran as the most far left presidential candidate in American history. And I think some of that was hubris. They didn't think there was any way they were going to lose to the you're fired guy from The Apprentice. Right. There's no way that was going to happen. Um, and so they got really fat and happy and uh, and, you know, they got their lunch eaten. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with the character of the 2020 presidential election, which was they were not going to let anything like that happen again. Um, you know, and it was, you know, the Hunter Biden how, laptop against the press right? and, and that, social media and all the rest of the stuff that they did. I mean, they went, they pulled all of the all stuff. All the plugs. Yeah. They, yeah. We they cannot have this happen again, no matter what. And that's why we can yeah. be criminals. That's why we can cheat. You know, that's why uh, Biden can be seen to get more votes than Obama. I mean, at the end of it, Obama must have been, come on, guys, did you have to make it? There was so many votes, it was more than me. I can just see his private ego having a little bit of a problem with that. But they did. They pulled out all the stops so they could put in this, this guy that carries on basically the decimation of America, and we're seeing it now. Uh, we've got a very big problem still with the borders, uh, all these people coming through, um, and the economy just a disaster. Well, and, you know, one of the things we talk about a little bit in the book uh, is something that you're starting to see more and more recognition of now, which is there was a dinner back in 2009 um, that Barack Obama hosted at the White House. And a bunch of the, the, the people that were there were all like these left wing, famous left wing historians, the Michael Beschlosses and the Doris Kearns Goodwins and these guys. And they, you know, they were all talking. The, the topic of conversation at the dinner was um you know, Barack Obama's uh, historical uh, importance, right? And what kind of figure was he going to go down in history as, as an American president? And part of that conversation was Obama talking about the fact that what he really wanted to see was an American economy that was dominated by the big incumbent corporate players and the unions and, you know, federal regulators, right? Essentially, essentially, what the Italian fascists said they liked when they wanted to build a corporatist economy. Okay. Um, and of course you could, you can relate this to FDR and the new deal, uh, which they did, obviously uh, there were plenty of, you know, magazine covers and things like that, that showed Barack Obama as FDR. Right. So this wasn't a secret that this is what they wanted to do, but you go back and you look at the eight years of Obama every year he was president, there were fewer businesses extant in America than the year before. For eight years, that number went down and down and down. Um, and, you know, wh what they did to small and mid-sized businesses in this country between the effects of Obamacare and like, you know, you couldn't carry somebody for 40 hours. They had to work 32 hours or less. Um, you know, and it, it made it almost impossible for a smaller mid-sized company to grow. And so many of them turned around and sold out. And now with Biden, the economy isn't just a corporatist economy. It's a corporatist economy that's controlled by a very small number of actors within institutional capital, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, who own massive shares of these big companies. So, for example, you have the Bud Light debacle, 
where the country just stops buying Bud Light. And you would think that that would destroy InBev's stock. And it took a hit, but it wasn't that bad. And you know why? Because the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the State Streets backstopped the stock. They bought it on the way down. And so it minimized the amount of economic damage. Try being a mid-sized company that has a massive PR failure like that. You go, you go broke. And so you have a almost an oligopoly um, for an economy now that, you know, you had some problems in 2007, but it was nothing like it is now. And it, this is the kind of economy that Barack Obama said that he wanted all the way back in 2009. And he's managed to achieve it. And oh, by the way, the oligopoly is woke. Top to bottom, it's totally woke. And every one of these companies is embracing DEI and, you know, changing their business model to accommodate climate change and all of these crazy things that don't make money and certainly don't help an economy. Um, and yet they all feel compelled to do it largely because of the effects of uh, politics and politics of the Obama strike. You know, all of the wokeness was a bit of a shock uh, from Obama as well. Um, I mean, there's been lots of rumors about Michelle and stuff like that, but uh, somebody put it to rest for me saying that she's not a transgender. Uh, you know, there's all the, this stuff that floats around about it. So I, I just laugh and I, I leave all of that to, hit, you know, eternity will tell us the truth. But I remember him being interviewed, I think before he was... Um, before he was put into office and he was saying that he had given his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ was his savior. And then it was almost like he was more Islamic. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, look, the guy spent some time in Indonesia, so he had, he had some affinity for that culture. Um, you know, and it, it was an American culture which that made it good, right? I mean, Barack Obama was solicitous of every other culture but ours uh, during his time as president. And, you know, I, I do, you know, am I going to say, well, he's a Muslim? I don't think he's a Muslim. I think that he legitimately would consider himself a Christian. However, the brand of Christianity that Barack Obama embraced was the Jeremiah Wright brand, right? Which was, you know, black liberation theology. Um, which is essentially a racialist, if not racist, um, brand of, of, of religious faith and doesn't have a lot of biblical um, uh, constructs behind it. And so, mm. you know, I, and the woke religion is expressly anti-Christian. I don't think there's any question about that. And of right. course, we're seeing a good bit of that uh, in these pro-Hamas, you know, Palestinian protests. And the, and the rampant anti-Semitism that we see, um, that's, the, that's how much the woke religion believes in the Judeo-Christian value and ethic. Um, and, and all of that traces back to Obama. Remember, you know, probably the most influential professor he had while he was in college was Edward Said at Columbia, who was a radical pro-Hamas uh, academic. Uh, one of Obama's best friends when he was in Chicago was Rashid Khalidi, who at the time was was at the University of Chicago, who is a radical pro-Hamas Palestinian academic. And, you know, there's if you remember that anecdote about this going away party for Rashid Khalidi uh, that Obama attended and I guess spoke at. And there's video of it that's locked away in the archives of the Los, Ang Los Angeles Times 
uh, that nobody's allowed to see it. Um, and, you know, what's supposedly on that video is nothing but Israel bashing on such a level that he would have never been able to get elected president back in 2008 if it was known about. Right. Wow. So this was all Obama. And now, again, you are seeing that mindset and that worldview having metastasized onto college campuses and in all of these big blue cities. You know, you see these giant pro Hamas demonstrations. It's not organic. It's not an accident. Wow. That explains a lot. Um, your book sort of uh, is tied into, a, you know, a season in history where what you're talking about is extremely relevant, more relevant yeah. than it ever could have been with what we're seeing in those streets. I mean, he could have moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And in fact, he would say that he was going to, but he, he never came through. And he seemed to right. be very, uh, you know, close with, you know, Iranians rather than standing with Israel. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, Valerie Jarrett grew up in Iran. You know, I mean, that like that this was before the uh, the, the mullahs took over. It was before the revolution. Um, but, you know, she grew up in Iran and, um, you know, there, I mean, you have a great deal of pro-Iran sentiment in Team Obama. And now you have it in Team Biden. Um, you know, whether it involves Joe Biden personally, we might leave that to uh, to James Comer's committee to ultimately find out who Hunter was doing business with. <laughs> you know, well, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I'm also not going to not make assumptions um, along 100%. those lines. I guess that's how you get pro pro uh, uh, Biden uh, policies that are pro uh, your side. Um, do you do you think? But that, you know, hey, look, I mean, it's 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 you know, it's there, it's in evidence. And, yeah. And, um, do you think that um, that that maybe Obama uh, never maybe anticipated the fact that Biden, the Biden crime family, may may have been getting this money or corrupt funds? You know, like they're exposing these checks and all of that. Um, and that this, this, this does, this sheds badly. It sheds light badly on Obama. Also what's happening in Iran, Iran funding Hezbollah, Iran funding Hamas, you know, they've got to be, there's a, an embarrassment factor. You hope they eventually feel for the fact that they have funded terrorism and the Bidens well, are I corrupt. I don't, I, like, I don't think there's any embarrassment at all. Right. They just um, because I, this is the thing. I don't believe that any of these guys think of these things in the same way that the rest of us do. Right. Like, right. oh, you can't do that. That will be a disgrace on America and whatever. Obama's you know, basically first thing that he ever did when he took office was to go on an apology tour and, and yeah. to bash America's history in front of all of these countries whose own histories were so much worse than ours. Right. He yeah. went to Turkey and apologized for America's role in the world <laughs> to Turkey. I mean, the Turks are like the worst bad guys in Europe by far. And he goes over there and he apologizes for us. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's a constant sort of undertone of, well, America is founded on slavery. And I was like, okay, you can't go to Turkey and talk about the evils of slavery in America. You also can't go to Turkey and talk about, um, you know, 
things like, well, you know, there was a genocide against the American Indians. It was like, well, you know, the Turks did the same thing to the Armenians. Okay, you don't have to apologize to them. And yet he was eager to do it. And he did it in all of these other places, you know, where, where you know, cruelty and, and uh, uh, atrocity is, is the rule rather than the exception. Um, and so, but the point is, this is a guy that doesn't respect the country, doesn't respect its history, doesn't respect its heritage or any of the values that, that founded it. And so the idea that, well, you know, you can't do this stuff because it would be bad for the American people or it's counter to our traditions or, uh, you know, or it's counter to American prestige across the planet. They don't care about any of that. So if you if you're using the vice presidency as a, uh, a sl- you know, basically a platform for a slush fund, does Barack Obama really care? No. Did he care about Hillary Clinton and her emails? Right. And she, she was running a private email server so that she could basically shake people down as secretary of state. And we weren't able to go do like a FOIA request and find out, uh, you know, what what was actually on those emails. You know, no, of course not. And of course, the reason for that was that Barack Obama was in on it. So, I mean, that's very obvious. Otherwise, Barack Obama would have been embarrassed about Hillary's emails. And he never was, you know, and, and it's because. It's important that those emails didn't get found out because it would have implicated him. Right. Obviously, it would have. She was his secretary of state. So, so why would he, you know, yeah, you know try to expose anything? Exactly. Wow. So um, we want to make sure that everyone knows how to get your book. And uh, I would say from all that you're saying is that, you know, Obama's left America much worse uh, than oh, yeah. what he what he founded in when he showed up. And that's very sad. And there's some undoing that has to be done. Racism, he's affected the black, as the first you know, African-American uh, president, he had an opportunity to, to bring together the nation and to say, look at America. You know, we have every opportunity for every child in this country to do great things. And he never did that. It was literally the reason that Obama was elected in 2008 was that, you know, Joe Sixpack voter who was not all that political, took a look at John McCain and went, eh, not all that interested. And it was, you know what, if we make this guy president, it exercises the racial demons once and for all. America can't be a racist country if it's got, it went out and elected a black president. And that, you know, that was the promise, the value proposition of his candidacy from the very beginning. And, And as a result of the power of that, you weren't allowed to look into his background and see how far left all of his influences were. The, you know, every time somebody talked about Bill Ayers or Jeremiah Wright or Frank Marshall Davis, they were shot down as racists and so forth. And so there was no accountability there. And they were able to you know, sort of have this empty vessel in which they poured all of this hardcore socialism. Um, without really any accountability from the American people at all. And so, yeah. And once he gets in office, immediately after that, you had the new Black Panther controversy, right? Which was a like big slap in the face to America. How, like, hey, things, this is not what you voted for. You are gonna get somebody who is gonna inflame these tensions rather than resolve them. And then you had the Beer Summit, then you had Trayvon, then you had you know, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, the whole bit, everything they could do to inflame race relations in the country. And 
in the process, use that to dismantle essentially local police forces and create cities as these shooting galleries across the country, which then make more pe- people more dependent on the government as a result. Mm. Diabolical. What a mess. A lot of this stuff had already been written up in academic papers years before Obama came along. I mean, I direct you go look, go Google the Cloward Piven strategy, for example, which was something that was written about in the late 60s. Um, that Obama, I mean, Obama went to a conference in 1983, his senior year in Col- at Columbia, at which the key speaker was Francis Fox Piven, who was one of the authors of that. Mm-hmm. He knew all about it. He ingested it and, and it became part of him politically. So wow. all of this stuff, is, you know, it's, it's all there in the history. It should have been outed to the American people. The folks who knew about it, that were trying to make it um, understood were shouted down because no, 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 no. We've got to have, uh, you know, we've got to have a black president to exercise these racial demons. And if you stand in the way of that, then all you're doing is creating more racial strife. Well, look at us now, right? How'd that work out for you? And and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a real shame, and it's one of the reasons I I, I felt like I had to write the book. Well, good for you. Uh, I just I'm fascinated by this whole discussion. I can't wait to read your book, Scott McKay. Uh, author of Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, It's All Obama. This has been, I have a feeling we could just go on for another hour, but you've already had like five interviews today or 10 or whatever. So uh, we're going to go easy on you. It's book promotion season for sure. Uh, But yeah, check it out on Amazon. You'll see a lot of reviews there. Uh, it's, I think it's fairly well received. It's, there's no, you are exactly right. It's a very, very timely topic. Um, particularly, you know, with, Biden's administration clunking along and, and people not really having a lot of confidence that he's in charge as like, oh, well, who is in charge? Well, read this book and you'll get a very, very, very good idea of what's behind the scenes. I 100 percent believe you and and uh, the facts and everything, uh, you know, that supports that position is all here. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a wonderful evening with your family. Thank yeah. you for taking time with us. And be blessed today. We'll talk to you again. I'd love to have a follow-up. Perhaps another book will come out uh, because we've got a few amazing years coming up and uh, it deserves another book. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that, everyone. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have been saying it's Obama behind the scenes. Like, that's that's what's going on. And so, you know, before... Everything that we're seeing now, uh, you know, Scott was asked if he'd be able to pen what's really happened, put the history onto the pages so we can kind of dissect it like a puzzle with all the pieces coming together. And that's what he's done. My website is lauralyn.tv. Thank you for joining me today. Um, You know, we, we talk an awful lot about world news. We've been talking about the Middle East a lot. We bring in Canada, crazy Canada. Uh, I hope Scott will maybe uh, put his eye on Trudeau and do an expose about Trudeau because uh, something is running him and it's not his own brain. (laughs) So it would be nice if we had a big uh, book on that. It's been a crazy run with the prime minister that we have. And uh, we do hope that, that we see a turnaround and also in the United States of America as well. Um, thank you for supporting us. We really value you so much. Many of you, you take a moment, you go to our website at laurelin.tv and you click on the donate button 
and you help us in a small or a larger way. You help to make this uh, continue because we are not funded by anyone. In fact, uh, we get, you know, slandered, um, shadow banned, and, you know, it's, it's very hard actually to do what we do and to, you know, make sure that we're meeting all the expenses that it takes. But with your help, we get it done. I really appreciate you, and I, I hope that you'll do that. And we're going to be talking next week about finances, and we want you to always remember that we're encouraging everybody, don't just keep chunks of change and, and cash in the bank. Um, maybe invest in something like real estate, maybe invest in gold and silver. And we recommend Steve Merrill at Sun City Silver and Gold. We believe that if the dollar crashes, gold and silver will not. That will actually be the a, a pivotal moment where uh, you'll have exponential growth, growth with gold and silver, and you won't see that with your dollars. Um, I was listening to somebody talking about this very fact and um, how our dollar is in a very dangerous position, and it is not... Um, sustainable the way that they're increasing our debt printing printing money not backed on gold so get the real gold you know it's super fun to have a few coins of silver in your hand they're super shiny and um, if you drill a little hole in them you can actually wear them on your ears as earrings uh, I haven't done it yet I just thought about it but we appreciate you so I'm gonna let you go today um, I'd like to read uh, from the book of Zechariah 8. Um, it's interesting, all of these things that are happening in the world, and I love to go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you can see um, how often the just uh, the places in the Middle East are, are uh, mentioned. You can see how often, um, you know, that they speak of uh, Zion, they speak of Jerusalem, they speak of, you know, God's blessing on the children of Israel and quite frankly, sometimes his curses because <laughs> they weren't always obedient and God was brokenhearted over Jerusalem. I love that there's so many Messianic Jews that are now finding the Lord and the Bible does say in the last days that they will be given an opportunity for that. So <clears throat> in Zechariah 8, it says the Lord promises to bless Jerusalem. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This would be to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Isn't that a funny question for God to ask himself? <laughs> Everybody's going to think this is super cool, super marvelous, but will it be marvelous to me? 
This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 7. <clears throat> I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or, uh, or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give these things as an inheritance to the remnants of this people. Well, There's a lot of confusion right now over the Middle East and what is happening. I ask you to stand with the people that God stands with. And I ask you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, of Israel, for the Jewish people, and for the Palestinians, that God would bring peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great weekend. You know, it's not easy to deliver the truth of what our sick world is doing, but for some of us, we feel that we have no choice. Because if we are silent about these abominable things, then we are letting evil go unchecked, and we cannot do that. For those of you wonderful people who are writing me and are sharing your encouragement, I am deeply grateful. Thank you for all the letters that you've been sending. Thank you for the donations and the support. I found out that in order to speak the truth, you have to become very, very strong. If you would go to my website at www.lauralyn.tv, you'll find all of the ways that you can contact me. Remember, my friends, all is well. All is well. Thanks for joining me.